Welcome again to another Scottish Documentary uh, podcast. Today we're bringing you some highlights from Masterclass we ran in late 2013, um, November 15th to be exact, with uh, artist and filmmaker Jeremy Weller. I won't explain too much about him as he does so himself very well at the start of the class. Uh, the film he, he references during the Masterclass, Limboland, takes place in a kind of uh, no-man's land between fact and fiction, uh, featuring ordinary teenagers, immigrants um, living in Denmark, uh, where they are having uh, a bit of a hard time settling down. Uh, the film itself is available on YouTube if you'd like to see it, um, and I do recommend that you do. Anyway, let's get things started. Thanks for uh, coming today, I appreciate that. Um, my specialist kind of area, if you like, is working with untrained actors, and sometimes mixing them with professional actors, so I might put a group of um, ex-gang members alongside someone like David Harewood in a production called The Foolish Young Man. David Harewood is the actor from Homeland who played the CIA chief. He's also a raw Shakespearean actor. So I'm exploring what it is to be an actor, what it is to perform, what it is to actually make art and be creative. Now, to start a description of my own work, I have to go back into my own experience. And my own experience is of no art whatsoever. No art whatsoever, no school, no real formal education until I went to art school. And I happened to go to art school because one day in a warehouse where I was signing for a delivery, I drawn all over the desktop. And the van driver turned to me, he said, uh, you're an artist, he said. You can get a grant as an artist and you can go to, yes, that was back in the day, back in those happy days. And he said, remember, you're talking to a person who had no education whatsoever. And I said, oh, can you really? He said, yeah, you're an artist. They'll give you money. So I phoned up the local art school and I said, I'm an artist. I want to come and meet you. And they said, well, come along, bring your stuff. And uh, so I took all my stuff along. And they said, yes, you are indeed an artist. You can have a scholarship. We'll give you a grant. Welcome to the world of art. So for me, as someone who came from a background of um, poverty, young offenders institutions, um, on the run, homeless, crazy kind of life, to me it was the discovering what life could be. I'd been born into a kind of mapless world. I had no role models, I had no guidance. I was kind of wandering the streets. I think I was the original feral child in Cameron's description. However, when I look back on these years, it was these years that informed all of my art because I didn't know what socialization was. I didn't know what it was to have a role in life. I didn't know what it was to be somebody. I was kind of like fallen between the margins in a way. I was probably, um, as I look back on it, I was quite a sort of marginalised um, social case in many ways. Though I didn't feel myself that way because I was writing, I was drawing, I was painting, I was sculpting. But I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what it was. It was just coming from an internal kind of 
imperative. And the people that I was around were saying, what are you doing that shit for? You know, what are you? I said, well, no, I just like to do this. And I was working, I was with gangs of boys. I was involved with football hooliganism and things like this, but I would actually get the boys that I was hanging out with to do little scenes for me and actually do little stories and they'd all go along with it. Um, so that was the kind of the basis of my work and at Goldsmiths I happened to join in a kind of historical moment because it was the Brit art moment. So Damon Hurst was in my year, Tracy Emin, Sarah Lucas, all of these people were in my year. Michael Craig Martin was the guiding light. It was a very conceptual year, very conceptual. I found it, I have to be honest, quite dry, quite intellectual, quite removed from life. Um, Richard Wentworth was my tutor. Um, so I actually went off from college. Actually, for the first year, I didn't bother going. I actually um, went back to Gloucestershire, where I'd grown up, and started working with kind of community groups and making plays. I got a call from the Dean of the college and he said, are you attending this college? I said, I'm on my way back. He said, well, if you don't attend, you're going to be expelled. So I, I came back and I started to do work. And my final show was theatre, film, photography, sculpture. I was so hungry for the creative world and so I just splurged on it. After I left Goldsmiths, I went to Poland. I got a scholarship there and I studied um, Tadeusz Cantor and I worked a little bit with Vida, people like that. And um, it was the time where communism was on its last legs and theatre and film, everything was censored, everything was watched. If you think prism's a problem, you should have been in Poland at this time. When the theatre plays were put on, the first two rows were taken up with censors men in black suits who weren't really hiding what they were and they had, like me, they had paper boards, clipboards in front of them and be doing this, marking down words that they found not acceptable. Theatre people and art people, filmmakers, were actually disappearing. They were dying to actually say the truth of what was going on in their society. So that was really a spoiler for me, to actually be involved in something like that and then to come back to Britain, where a lot of art was very, very commercial. But when I came back, I did my first play, which was called Glad, and um, I'd researched amongst the homeless, and I thought, now I'm going to, now that I've researched amongst all these characters, I'm going to get actors to play their part. So I had a kind of a notion after meeting one man. He'd been homeless for 26 years. And I started to talk to him and he said, oh, you're putting on a play. He said, are you going to include any Shakespeare? And I said, probably it'd be good to put a little bit in. He said, which speech would you like? And I said, well, something from uh, Henry V. He said, what about Richard III? I said, well, anything. And so he recited speech after speech after speech. When you looked at this person, you just thought, absolute, this was a down and out, this was the lowest of society, this was a guy who fell asleep in the library, a nothing. Yet, he was a kind of genius in many ways, so he became the focus of the play and the spokesperson for the play, but also he created in me the idea of telling people stories. The idea that you could meet someone like Terry Rigby and you could actually frame his experience in a creative arc, in a theatre or in a film. You could actually frame it. Somehow you could get his emotions to fit a character. So that what he was expressing, there wasn't really a fourth wall. You didn't have to suspend your disbeliefs. You could actually 
what you were hearing and what you were seeing and what you were feeling were real. Actually, he was portraying his life on the stage. I've done many, many different plays and worked in the German state theatre system, the Danish state theatre system, the, all over the world doing things. I've won a lot of prizes for theatre. Lars von Trier saw one of my plays in Denmark and he said, would I like to um, make a film? And so I said, yes, I'd love to. And he said, what would you like to make it about? I said, about second generation immigrants who are unable to integrate into Danish society. And he said, okay, he said, what do you need? I said, I just need a sound stage and two directors of photography, and then I'll go. He said, are you going to make a script? I said, yes, I've made one. And I said, here it is. But actually, there wasn't a script. It just had writing on the front page, but it was, there was nothing in it. So every day, I would go into the film set with all these professional technical crew and say to them, today we're doing this. And that's actually what was on the page. <laughs> so one day... Uh, the, they, didn't they didn't know. One day the technical crew all bandied together. It's very interesting and strange what happened. I shouldn't be telling you, but I will. They bandied together and they said, it's a revolution. We are not working for you anymore. You don't know what you're doing. You have no idea what you're doing. And I said, that's true, but you're working for me making this film and it's being commissioned, so why don't you just do it? So I carried on and in the middle of, uh, they left, uh, they carried on doing their roles, and in the middle of the afternoon, a young boy from S Somalia, he stood out, you're going to see this scene in a minute, he stood out of the film and he said, I don't want to act, he said, I'd rather be me, and you don't know who I am, because I've killed people, and this is who I am, and in fact, you lot are pissing me off, in fact, I could kill you all, and the crew were like this. And then there was all this noise behind the sound curtain where all the sound mixers were. And so I thought, right, I'm gonna deal with them afterwards. So the scene ended, I sat him down. He was just explosive, sat him down. I went round to the sound crew and I said, what's going on? You know, I was working, could you not keep it quiet? And they said, um, oh, Lars von Trier was here watching what was going on. I said, how long was he here for? And they said, oh, he was here for about 45 minutes. He saw that whole breakdown. So I thought, oh shit, that's me, I'm going to be kicked out of here, I'm on my way back to UK. <laughs> the next morning we had our normal Danish morning meeting, which usually involves 28 people, and it's a, it's a prelude to another meeting, but you have this morning meeting, you all sit down. And my producer, who wasn't the nicest guy in the world, sat down and he said, before you start your meeting, I just want to say this, Lars von Trier was in yesterday. And there was this pause, and I thought, oh no, I packed my suitcase, ready to go. He said, and he thinks it's one of the best things that Zentrope has produced in 10 years, and you must all do as Jeremy says. So when he left, I turned to them all, I said, I don't care if you never work with me again, I don't care if you never work with untrained actors again, you do as you're told from now on. And the film went on to win the highest Danish film prize. So that was my movement from theatre to film. I do a lot of fighting with producers because I wanted nine weeks of filming uninterrupted. I had no script. I wanted to just do what I wanted to do. I had two directors of photography and as I directed them, I would be below camera moving them around and I'd go close, wide. And so it's kind of an unorthodox way of working. Time builds up trust. Also because I'm, when I'm working with them, I sound and look as if I'm something different, but I myself have been the 
uh, criminal system and have been into a lot of trouble and have been pretty marginalised. So when I speak to them, they know I'm not coming from here. I'm coming on a parallel world to them. I understand a lot of the stuff they've done. So um, I think that's what it is as well. I'm working in a prison at the moment in Corton Vale with uh, women prisoners. And uh, it's a similar situation. When they first meet, they say, you're an artist, you're coming from here, wanting to play with us. But actually, when I go in there, I go, well, no, I've asked myself the same questions. Who am I? What's, what's my role? Can I move from this position to this position? In society, are we stuck with our born role? Are we affixed to this role? Can we shift? Can I become a, you know, a lord? Can I become a, you know, what, what's the parameters of choice that I have? Am I predetermined? So these kind of questions. And I'm in Colton Vale with a group of women, 12 women, who educationally are probably way below average. But two of them said to me last night, because I do a night project with the night drama, I call it, um, in their block, and then they can go back to their cells afterwards. So they come, if they want to come to the class. Two of the women last night said to me, I want to learn to act because I want to appear more than I am. So if, you, if you're asking sort of uh, more complex questions, people can reply and people can actually understand it. I, I really liked what you said about, um, you know, having such a need to make this work. It feels that it comes from such a... A connection, and in a way, if it ends up being theatre and film, feels sort of in a way irrelevant. The point is unique. <coughs> Could you translate that into somebody coming to you with a commission, like somebody saying, I want you to make a film, and coming to you with a script? Would that be of interest to you, or do you feel like you have to have this? I, I think it's, it's in, I mean, all the stories, you know, a human being has so much experience, well, I've got quite a lot in my backpack, so I'd be surprised if some sort of connection couldn't be made, but I, I as you as you'll rightly identify, I need the emotional charge. It needs to be connected into me in a very deep way to go through all that hassle and to go through all that sort of tears and sweat, you know. It, I could do it because I could probably... Um, I could probably find a way into it emotionally, but I find it very strange when people come to me and they say, I want to be a director. And I say, but why do you want to be a director? And they say, because I just want to be a director. And I say, oh, okay, well, that's good luck with that then. I'll do it. It's fantastic. Go ahead. I didn't have that urge. I had the urge to paint. I had the urge to make pieces of performance, then theatre, and then film. And it, 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 it's sort of like the other way round. Things are kind of imperatives that draw, drive me and then I have to sort of find a way. It's like there's a piece of work I want to do with an ex, just to give an example of that. There's a piece of work I want to do with um, someone who's, maybe I'll put an actor into this, but I want to put a priest or a church person in a kind of hostage situation where they have to kind of justify their faith to the point of kind of nearly death. And I want to see what that brings up. So these are the kind of things that are like puzzles that I don't know where they come from but they're kind of puzzles that I then start writing around. What would happen? How would this work? What would the person be able to sort of um, show their true faith and their belief? Would he be able to change this person? What would it mean? It's, it's, it's those kind of 
puzzles. And it's another piece, a theatre piece, is the story of a guy, a young offender, who holds a kind of normal family hostage and actually gets them to perform his long-lost family. Now, I think, for me, that's very autobiographical, because I can remember wandering the streets, looking in through people's windows, thinking, that's normal life. That role that they're in, it's not like me. I'm not a part of it, but it looks like normal life. And I thought, well, how would a young person get that? Well, make them act. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's, yeah. that's the kind of puzzles. The puzzles of my own existence come out in the search for art. Which is wonderful, but then I don't understand how that can intersect with someone like Susan Sarandon turning up in Brazil. I'll tell you how it intersects, because she, she actually phoned me up, and this is when I introduced the project I want to make with her, and she said, well, UNICEF have asked me to do a project with street children. And I said, well, because of our project, you should go to this place, this r r rubbish dump where all the children live. You know, you should go there and make it there. She's a very radical person, but she's also, she's between a lot of different stools. She's a Hollywood celebrity, but she's also very engaged. And she still will do this film, but I need to find the money because she doesn't use her own money. She uses her own money for a life. I can understand that. So she fits in one way that she can actually say things. I mean, back in the day when the Americans invaded Iraq, she was one of the few people with her husband yes. who actually said, this is wrong. And a friend of mine, a, a Scottish guy, was bodyguarding for them at the time. A really just a normal Scottish guy, you know, tough guy. And he said he went to a baseball game with them and two American, he said big guys. Now, if a big guy in America, you're talking something like this speaker, you know, they're big. <laughs> If you've seen XL clothes in America, I mean, they're like tents. So he said two really big guys came up to Tim Robbins and to Susan Sarandon and said, you two are cunts, you're not American, you're not patriots. Watch your backs, because we're going to fucking do you. And Stevie said, you know, guys, calm down and everything. So I think she's quite a radical person. I think she's put herself, she's able to put herself in a very difficult position for her beliefs. And that's how she gets to Brazil because she's able to say, I think this. And people don't think, you know, if you put, imagine another actress, imagine a British actress, can you think of anyone that you could put into Brazil and she could say, well, I think this plight of street children is a terrible thing. Mm. Difficult, because a lot of them are in magazines and things saying, well, my shoes are and my handbag is this. And <laughs> or if they go to one of the places, the trouble spots, they've got a crew with them yeah. and it appears in hello. I have worked, I've seen directors pushing people quite far and remind me of drama school, just say back to me drama school in a minute because it will trigger me to give you a thing. Um, I've never actually pushed people like that. I've just presented an open forum in which people take full advantage of it. This is, this is my point earlier, that if you say to people, well look, this is a truth zone, you can say what you want, it's democratic, you say what you want. If you don't want to be here, go. If you want to be here and you want to do this scene about this subject, go for it. But let's see what it really means to you. I don't push people. I've worked in the German State Theatre where all the actors are crying at lunchtime and the director walks in in a black cloak and says, you know, to the women, you're a bitch, you're a whore, get out, you slut, you know, you can't be any good here. I've heard that. I've actually heard that. And I said to, the, I said to a, quite a famous director, I said, you're, you're an idiot. You know, why are you talking to people like that? 
And he said, it's my theatre, it's my show, I can do what I want. You know, flounced around. And just for your, to come back to drama school, I remember, drama schools, a lot of young people I encounter who come in as interns or come to assist me have been in drama schools. And one of the things that I know happens in drama schools is that the professors of drama, who have no kind of psychological training whatsoever, will take a young person, 18, 19, and say to them, I'm going to smash you, I'm going to break you, I'm going to rebuild you, here you are, go with it. I have never done that. I think that's utterly appalling. You know, psychotherapists might take 10 years helping someone to kind of remap or rebuild themselves. A, a drama teacher says, fuck you, now I can do what I want with you, I'm playing with you, I'm going to smash you. Do the stats on how many young people kill themselves in drama school. I think it's quite a high number. I wonder who's responsible. <laughs> well, sorry. Because what's so incredible about this work is the relationship you obviously have with them, which seems so direct and so clear, their trust in what you're doing. And that, I can imagine with all the paraphernalia of a drama, that would be really hard to keep that yeah. going quite so... Well, you've, you've touched on a very contentious thing about this latest film, because I was desperate to keep that connection going but sometimes people would interfere like the clapper person would interfere and the continuity person would interfere and I was thinking fucking hell I was just talking to the person so I learned that I need a tiny crew I need uh, lots of kind of guerrilla style filming I need you know a genius DOP genius editor I can be okay but I need all that backup yeah I, I think I'm very scared about modern life it, to be honest with you, I'm very scared about all the mediation that goes on and our acceptance of the mediation, our acceptance that other people speak for us and on our behalves. I'm very scared about that and that's the root of my work is that I allow people to speak for themselves and speak clearly for themselves because I think when people do it's messy, it's full of contradiction, it's, it's not neat, it's not narratively structured, it's crazy. But I'm noting more and more and more that we, people are telling us what is correct and what's not correct and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. I mean, in 1986, I was in Poland during the collapse of communism and I thought, well, this won't return. People snooping on people like the Stasi in East Germany and places like that. And now it's kind of, we're, we're living in a turbocharged version and everyone goes, oh, well, it's just what it is. It's fine. It's okay. You know, just Facebook. What does it matter? Now, in the film, I mean, you know, we see very many different moments. And I really kind of encourage you to go to YouTube and see the whole film. Um, you've got also moments where things kind of, you know, go wrong between kind of yeah, but I th participants. I, th I think that's okay that, that uh, you know, there's a stress to make art that's neat and complete and finished, whereas I think if you look at the whole film, you'll see at certain points it breaks down and becomes not a film, becomes a kind of mess, and then it resurfaces as a film, and the director and his co-director start arguing, and it just falls apart, but then it goes back to being a film again. It's, it's, it's kind of like messy like life, I suppose. and. We made choices and said, well, this is true, this happened, we're not kind of godlike, we know everything. We've, we fucked up a couple of times and we left it in the film.
We were idiots. But we left it in the film. No, no. But then, but then we're still human beings asking these questions with our own <coughs> precepts and concerns. And why shouldn't that be part of the subject? Because they said to me, a lot of the young people said to me, "Oh, you really fucked up. You upset Thelma, didn't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I did actually. I yeah, I really did." Oh, you fucking idiot. <laughs> I said, yeah, maybe that's right, yeah. I said, but I don't do it every day, it's just this once. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, we're not, um, there is this thing in art, I mean, I don't know how many directors are in the room, but there's probably a lot by the look of you. Um, <laughs> you <laughs> they've got that earnest look of directors. <laughs> um, I think it's that thing about you have a godlike power, you're shaping life, you're actually presenting life, but actually you're not a god, you're actually fallible. So it's just to say, oh yeah, I messed up, I mess up. It's not um, like the German state theatre system where the German director comes out and he says, you this, you that, and I think, you know, how do you get into that position? You know, what does he have for breakfast? <laughs> I think you're all done, aren't you? You're spent. Or are you? Sorry to break the flow here. Um, we're approaching the end of Jeremy's class, but we've uh, still got a couple of clips left. Um, first, Jeremy talking about what Lars von Trier is like to be around. And uh, then we have an example of the kind of stories he finds it difficult to tell others about. Um, the two might seem a bit odd without being introduced, so um, that's why I did so. Yeah, he, he was actually a very generous person. He is a generous person. He's very kind, very thoughtful, and a bit brutal as well. But really a nice person, very generous. I mean, and um, we were having dinner after this, after we'd cut this together, and my producer turned to him and he said, go on, Lars, admit it, you're jealous. You would love to get performances like this out of non-actors. He said, all right, yeah, I admit it, so what? <laughs> and he was he's a kind of playful guy a lot of the stuff he says apart from his Nazi stuff is he's just he's playful and uh, kind actually you know supportive you have to remember Zentropa had about I think it was at one point 50 directors all there in the studios because of him and Peter Olbeck I mean and on a Friday they used to go to a meeting in the main hall, because it used to be an army barracks. And then people would just talk about the projects they were involved in. And then um, Peter Olbach, who was the producer, main producer, would play jazz saxophone and drum. And, it was, and then people would read poetry. It was really quite radical and amazing, really, to be there. And it reminded me of Goldsmiths, funnily enough. It was like coming back to Goldsmiths. Just this air of pure creativity and with no bounds, actually. You know, someone would say, oh, I'm doing something about Congolese kind of slave trading, or oh, I'm doing something about um, children who, you know, miss their fathers, I'm doing something about, you know, Islam, you know, it would just be so many different. I'm doing a fiction, Susanna Beer was there, all these different people. So it was really, um, that American word, nourishing. <laughs> If I sit down in a room with people that, and I ask them questions and I know all sorts of types of people, some of the stories that come at me, I can't even tell other people. My wife will say to me, well, what did you talk about with um, 
the security guys, and I, guys I know who work, for example, in the security industry, so they go to Somalia, and I said to a friend of mine, I said, well, what did you do in Somalia? And he said, I killed pirates. Do you want a beer? And I said, but he said, I'm not, I'm, that's it. I'm not discussing it. And then other people, you know, they tell you things and you think, well, no, that's, that's called pirate negotiation, isn't it? And he said, there's no negotiating going on. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's just, that's what interests me. I see what you're saying. But for me, I think, oh, wow, imagine if I was with him and actually... I think the other thing I'm quite interested in is, is, is if you're talking to your security guy and he tells you that story and you're on camera, there's something about you being an artist that's interested in not simply hearing those stories, but in documenting, filming, presenting, uh, turning those stories into something other than pop chat. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That, that's, the, that's the more complex movement from talking to my pal to actually saying to him, and I said to him, I'm, I want to, I said to him, I'm going to write a story about you and you can play the lead character. I was lying because basically he'll need to write anything because he'll just tell it all. And he said, no, he said, I don't want to be in uh, films and theatre, he said, because that's a bunch of gays. He said, I'm not going to be involved in that. <laughs> And I said, well, that actually happens to be true. There is a lot of <laughs> gayness in the world, but that's because people are free and expressive. I said, go and join them. <laughs> and he said... He said, no. <laughs> he said, don't get me wrong. He said, they're a nice bunch of people. He said, it's not for me. And he's, he introduces me to his kind of security pals and he says, Jeremy's in the theatre, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm a... Married man with lots of children, you know, what does that mean? He said, I could be camouflage. <laughs> I said, it's pretty complex. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Okay, well, thank Jeremy, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thanks for listening. Um, we also have clips of the event on our website, www.scottdoc.com. Uh, also searchable on YouTube and Vimeo. Feel free to subscribe to those channels or indeed our SoundCloud page for the podcast. Um, or hopefully by now uh, searchable on iTunes, um, although we're still waiting on the link um, being confirmed. So yeah, everywhere basically. Um, if you enjoyed, please share with uh, anyone else you think might be interested. All the very best and thanks for listening.